Well, it's great to be with you folks today. Thank you so much for giving this opportunity to us to be back here to talk to you today about the Friends of Israel. There's some folks here who I do not know. For those, let me just say a brief word. I'm Paul Scharf. I was the interim pastor here from 2015 to 2017. And for those of you who uh, we do know from that time, uh, it's just wonderful to be back with you. And thank you for all you have done for us and meant to us through these years. You have uh, blessed us in innumerable ways and been incredibly generous to us. And we thank you so much for all you have done. And it's a joy to be back here with you today. And uh, as I said, to talk to you about the Friends of Israel, that's why we're here. If you don't know anything about the Friends of Israel or why I'm talking about it, you'll find out during this hour, okay? What a joy to have uh, Chief Manthe with us this morning. That was wonderful. And thank you for your work with the Gideons and uh, for that uh, inspiration to share God's Word that you gave to us this morning. Thank you for that. And it's just an honor to be with you again today, Chief. So thank you all for, um, again, allowing me to come in so early in our ministry with the Friends of Israel, which I'm going to talk to you about this morning, the question of why, answering the question, why the Friends of Israel? All right, I'm going to give you four reasons why we are now involved with the Friends of Israel, why I hope that you might be motivated by the time that we're done this morning to desire to invest your energy, your prayers in this ministry of the Friends of Israel, your involvement, uh, your learning from this ministry at this time in which we live today. A number of things have happened in our lives that I'll catch you up a little bit along the way uh, since we've uh, left you uh, last. And uh, one thing that has happened just recently is that... um, I had uh, never been ordained before in ministry. I had been licensed before, but never ordained. And my clicker is not working, Mitch. Are we on the right program? Right there we go. Let's see. Is that... My clicker isn't doing anything, though. Okay. Well, we'll uh, otherwise, you'll have to uh, run them from back there. But uh, that is me with Dr. Jim Showers, the Executive Director of the Friends of Israel. Uh, Dr. Showers came out to Watertown last month, where, as I said, I'd never been ordained, so I actually went through an ordination council and ordination and commissioning for the Friends of Israel for service last month at Fellowship Baptist Church. And Dr. Showers flew out from New Jersey, where the Friends of Israel is headquartered, just to be part of my ordination council on that Saturday, the first Saturday in February. And then on Sunday, and so Mitch, you'll have to run the slides from there. Uh, from the back. Thank you. Uh, So on Sunday, I was ordained and commissioned on Super Bowl Sunday, and Ken Krijan came to be with us today, so uh, that day. So thank you, Ken. That was a wonderful blessing. That's me with the speaker from the service, who's my college head football coach, Dr. Terry Price, came to be the speaker for me at that day. So that is uh, sort of the official launch fully into our ministry with the Friends of Israel. But again, so today we're talking about why the Friends of Israel, and I'm going to give you four reasons why, the first of which, and we're going to be looking at a number of different scriptures 
here this morning. Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy said I had till about noon this morning. Does that sound right to all of you? Okay, so you might want to get up and get a drink, stretch your legs, come back. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about the first reason is our dispensational heritage. Our dispensational heritage. And go ahead with the next slide, please. I'd like to share with you one of the great quotes of Christian history from Sir Isaac Newton. How many know who he was? Okay, did you know he had more interest in the Bible, and particularly in Bible prophecy, than he did in science, for which he is most famous? But here's one of the great quotes that he left to us. He said, About the times of the end, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies and insist upon their literal interpretation in the midst of much clamor and opposition. I believe we're living in times like that today. Sir Isaac Newton was talking about a principle that flowed out of the Protestant Reformation and began to bear fruit roughly a hundred years after he lived that we know today, and we are the here in this church body in the IFCA International, to which this church belongs, a direct descendant of the fruit of that tree, if you will, and it's a system of theology called dispensationalism. Traditional dispensationalism. This is a chart of the seven dispensations of traditional dispensationalism that go through history from creation to the coming kingdom, which is the fulfillment of history and God's plan for history and the beginning of God's rule that will last through eternity. The the dispensations, by the way, we will not be going through many things this morning that we touch on in any comprehensive way, and this is one of them. Okay, but I hope this is familiar to you. I know it is to most of you. And what are the big things that we want to take away from this, this chart as we look at it for just a moment without going into all of, all of the details? Well, it's that God has a plan for history. And that His ultimate purpose is to what? To bring glory to Himself. And he is doing that as he works all things according to the counsel of his own will, moving history in a direction. Of course, at the center of history is the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to make one thing abundantly clear, even here as we begin this morning, that the dispensations, I believe there are seven biblical dispensations, are not different ways of salvation. Okay? How many understand that? The dispensations are not, by the way, the word dispensation is a, is a biblical word. It is the idea of an administration or a stewardship or a, a rule of a house. They are not seven ways of salvation. There's only one way that anyone has ever been saved, that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You say, what about before the cross of Christ? They couldn't believe in Christ alone, could they? Well, they didn't have... Obviously, before Christ came, the events of his death, burial, and resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he died for our sins and was buried and rose again. According to the Scriptures, that hadn't happened yet, and they didn't understand it yet in that way. But think of the very first promise of the Gospel to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 15. There's coming one, the seed of a woman, who will crush the serpent's head, his heel will be bruised, but he will have victory. 
and provide what? Salvation. That is the, the source of your grace and faith. That is the one in whom you trust for forgiveness of sin. The coming sin bearer. The coming Messiah. Salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone. The content of faith has changed and grown as God has revealed more over time to what we understand since the coming of Christ that we must specifically believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal God who became man to die for our sins so that we could have the forgiveness of sin, eternal life in heaven with Him by trusting in Him alone. But no one has ever been saved in any other way than by grace and through faith. Now, then what are the dispensations for? Well, there are ways that we manage our lives. That has changed through history. God gave different revelation to Adam, uh, or I should say he gave an initial revelation to Adam that was expanded upon in the revelation given to uh, Noah after the flood and then to Abraham, which we'll look at this morning if we have time just briefly later. He called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and made a covenant with Abram. And that covenant is, is the basis of even our salvation today. We are all sons and daughters of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. We are part of the universal blessings God promised to Abram, who became Abraham. Um, but even that covenant continued to be expanded upon. God gave additional covenants to the people of Israel, the land covenant and the Davidic covenant, ultimately the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Uh, and then God gave the law through Moses. And then there came a day when the reign of the law ended on the cross of Christ. He made an end to those ordinances that were against us, didn't he, on the cross. And so we have new revelation that God has given to us in the New Testament, don't we? And it's in that sense that this age we live in today which I like to call the church age, to avoid any confusion of the fact the church began on the day of Pentecost, and it will end when? On the day of the rapture, the day of Christ, when he returns to take the church to heaven. When the last brick is laid in heaven, where he's building our heavenly home, and the last spiritual brick is laid on earth, where he's building this building of the church of Jesus Christ on earth, then he will return and take us to be in our heavenly home, won't he? And during this church age, it's we sometimes call it the age of grace. Well, it's not the age of grace in comparison to other ages in terms of how we're saved. We've already covered that, right? So in what sense is it the age of grace? It's that we in this generation are called to live by what? Grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you, Romans 6.14, for you are not under law, but under grace. It's the grace that teaches us Titus chapter 2. It's the, uh, what Paul calls in Galatians 6 the law of Christ, what James calls in chapter 1 the perfect law of liberty. It's a, a new code of instruction that's given to us for this church age, this age of grace that we live in. And then, of course, the coming kingdom when the fullness of God's plan for history will be complete and finalized as Jesus Christ rules in this world. All for the glory of God. Now, what are some other major things we can take away from this chart? Two things I'd like to share with you this morning. 
And it's this. This is what distinguishes us as dispensationalists from other uh, forms of orthodox Christian theology. Okay? Uh, Here they are. God uh, has told us in His Word that the church is distinct from what? Israel. Israel and the church are two different peoples of God. He has a plan for Israel and a plan for the church. And the church is not the new Israel or the spiritual Israel. The church is distinct from Israel. And here's now, all Jewish people who believe the gospel today become part of that church. But na- the nation of Israel, the people of Israel as a national entity, that entity is distinct from the church. And here's the big one. God still has a future plan for the people of Israel. He will fulfill every promise and every prophecy that he made to the people of Israel. That is at the heart of what we call dispensationalism. God is not finished with the people of Israel. You say, well, they don't deserve to have a future. They're, I mean, they're in unbelief. They've rejected Christ. They said, let, him, let, uh, let uh, the, the sin of crucifying Christ be on us and our children. And you say, they don't deserve a, they don't deserve a future fulfillment. So my question to you this morning is, how many want to begin going by what we deserve? Okay, because if it did, if you raise your hand, the floor would open up right now. We'd all descend in a lake of fire and the service would be quickly over. All right. You say, well, but is God really going to fulfill those promises he made to Israel? It seems so hopeless right now when we look at the world and see the tiny nation of Israel regathered and, and we see all the forces of this world, is this really going to happen? And we say, well, we must trust so and hope so because if God is unable or unwilling to fulfill his promises to Israel, then what is the hope that we draw for that for our own lives? Because Paul told us in the book of Philippians, we can be confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as he will perform every good work he has promised to you and to me, he will perform every good thing he has promised to the people of Israel. God has a plan for Israel that is yet to be fulfilled. And Israel is distinct from the church. Those are at the heart of dispensational theology. I can stand before you and assure you today that the Friends of Israel gospel ministry is still, after its long history that it's had, it is still a champion, a stalwart, a standard-bearer of traditional dispensational theology. I can tell you that because I went there last March for an interview, and I was told that if I was not a traditional dispensationalist, they kindly invited me not to return. Okay, So I can assure you of that. And I'd like to share with you this quote as we end this portion of the message from my theological mentor, Dr. John Whitcomb. He said, For many centuries, the church has been subjected to various spiritualizing interpretations of Old and New Testament prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ. It is our prayer that God will raise up many faithful students of His Word in these last days who will search the prophetic Scriptures 
in the belief that God actually means what he says. That's dispensationalism. The first reason why I want to invest in the Friends of Israel is because of our dispensational heritage. The second reason is because of our moment in history. We live in a very unique time that uh, is uh, coming upon um, uh, the events of the world today. We see um, something unique in all of history has happened. We mark the 80th, excuse me, the 70th anniversary of it last May. And I'm talking about what? The reestablishment of the modern state of Israel. Okay? The, the, the renewal of the state of Israel as a nation, as a national entity. I want you to know, and most of us in this room have lived our entire lives, probably, or at least our entire uh, life in which we were cognizant of world events, with Israel back in the land. We're just used to that. And we're, we're, Israel is talked about in the newspapers and the media of all kinds, second only to the United States. That is an amazing thing in and of itself. We're just, we hear about Israel all the time. And, and do we stop and think of how incredible it is that a people would leave their homeland for almost 2,000 years, be in dispersion in, amongst the nations of the world, be neither assimilated nor annihilated, but maintain their religion, their culture, their language, and their desire to return and reestablish their national boundaries. And yet this happened in 1948. The people of Israel returned to their land. Now this is Dr. John Walver, the longtime beloved president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and I could have probably pulled a hundred quotes or more from him that say the same thing. He said, of the many peculiar phenomena which characterize the present generation, few events can claim equal significance as far as biblical prophecy is concerned with that of the return of Israel to their land. It constitutes a preparation for the end of the age, the setting for the coming of the Lord for his church, and the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic destiny. I want to tell you today, there was a time in our nation, in churches like this, where that message was absolutely, there was a hunger for that message. It was popular. It was thrilling to people. Um, there was a time that message was in season, shall we say. And I want to tell you, that day is past. We have not joined with the friends of Israel because this is just the hottest thing going. We want to grab onto it while it's good. Because that's not the case. Especially among younger people. And I do not say that to demean anyone today who consider. I consider myself young, so I can say that. All right, especially among younger people. This is not the case. Um. There, and, and there are all kinds of factors. This could be a whole other lecture we won't go into this morning. But just anecdotally, I'll share you with you this with you. My supervisor in the Friends of Israel is named Pat Neff in Arizona, and he was calling churches asking for a meeting like we're having today to talk about the Friends of Israel. And he called a Bible church that has 
Awana. How many here have heard of Awana? Okay. And I don't know if it's an IFCA member. It had all the hallmarks of a church he might call. And it had a new young pastor. And he called asking to, uh, you know, if he could come and speak about the Friends of Israel. And I don't know if the pastor had heard of the Friends of Israel specifically before, but he gave this response. He said, Sir, if you were the friends of the Palestinians, we would love to have you come. But the Friends of Israel, we want nothing to do with. Now that is not unusual. That is the growing sentiment even among and even among some younger disp- uh, claiming dispensationalists, the idea that there is, there is no significance at all to the modern state of Israel to what God is doing in Israel today. Well, why is there this uh, understanding? The next slide here's a man that a lot of you know from a Sunday school class, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He says this: the problem is the failure to see that. The prophet spoke of two international returns. Okay? First, there was to be a regathering in unbelief in preparation for judgment. Namely, the judgment of the tribulation. That's the coming seven-year tribulation that follows the rapture of the church. The purpose of which is to bring Israel to repentance to receive her king and his kingdom. Okay, This was to be followed by a second worldwide regathering in faith in preparation for blessing, namely the blessings of the Messianic age, the kingdom. Two returns, one in unbelief for judgment, one in fullness in belief in preparation for blessing. Dr. Thomas Ice says these, basically the same thing. Uh, he said there are many reasons why we can say that the modern state of Israel is prophetically significant. It's of stage-setting significance for the tribulation. In short, there will be two end-time regatherings. One before the tribulation and one after the tribulation. And we see that now on this chart. And again, this uh, will just be picking some thoughts in summary from this chart that gives us what? Israel's two end-time gatherings, one before the tribulation in preparation for judgment, one after the tribulation or during the tribulation, culminating at the end of the tribulation, in belief culminating in blessing. Okay, Now, this first regathering in unbelief didn't have to happen in 1948 or even during the church age. That was not prophesied, but that is what has happened. And you see, here's where people get hung up about this, the significance of the modern state of Israel because we don't believe that even Jewish people can be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They must come to faith in Christ in order to be saved. They will not be saved by virtue of their Jewish heritage. But here's the, here's the kicker. Before you can be a believer, what do you have to be? This is really profound, so think hard here. Before you can be a believer, what do you have to be? An unbeliever. How many in this room before you were a believer were an unbeliever? Isn't that profound? Can God do a work in the heart of an unbeliever? Well, I hope so. Otherwise, none of us should be here this morning, right? You see, this is what the prophets speak of, particularly the prophet Ezekiel. If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 38, 
uh, excuse me, tur- well, we, we, we turn to 36, please, uh, ultimately. But if you remember chapter 38 and 39, the Battle of Gog and Magog, I believe they're at the midpoint of the coming tribulation. That's, there are different views on that among dispensationalists. We'll leave that for now. But the point is that the Battle of Gog and Magog. Now, what happens before the Battle of Gog and Magog? God brings this body of Israel to life in chapter 37. Remember there's a song about that? Somebody want to sing for us this morning? The song about the bones coming together? Remember that? The bones come together and and then they come to life. And God breathes life into this body in the land of Israel in preparation for judgment. Okay? Uh, and ultimately in preparation for a final blessing. But they're going to go through war and hardship and judgment to bring the nation to repentance. But you see that body comes together and comes to life in the land. He brings them together in the land. We turn back to Ezekiel 36. It's listed on the screen here. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse... uh, Well, let's begin here with... um, Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. They were driven out to the nations. But God for his own glory is to bring them back. And we're summarizing things we could spend much more time on, folks. So I I can give you, you know, I can point you to this information later. I can point you to other resources, but for many of you, these are familiar things. We're summarizing here. But notice verse 23. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, whom I, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Now here it is, verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. And then, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. You see, they're brought back to the land in unbelief, lifeless. Brought back to life and given spiritual life in the land. And so I believe this is what God has uh, prepared within history by bringing Israel back in the land, even in our time. We could turn back to Ezekiel 22. For sake of time, I'll just point you there. Verses 17 through 22 make this so clear. And they're on the screen as well. And another uh, incredible passage about all of this is in everyone's favorite book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Zephaniah. I encourage you to go home and read its three chapters. It gives the most brilliant description of the coming tribulation in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2 it says, Gather yourselves together. Gather, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. He's going to bring the nation back into the land in unbelief, in preparation for judgment. And in the process, he's going to bring them to life in the land and regather them in fullness in preparation for blessing. Therefore, I believe that the 
regathering of Israel, which culminated in 1948, there's lots of history behind that we won't go into this morning for sure, is, as Tommy I said, prophetically significant. It's, God is setting the stage for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And we are living at this incredible time in history where these things are occurring. Now it's true, the people of the nation of Israel are by and large unbelievers. They're, many of them are very liberal. They're not following their own law, which, which causes the ultra-Orthodox among Jewish people to say we shouldn't even be in the land. We're not even following our law. All those things are true. But all of those things are in accord with what the Bible says will happen as God prepares us for the end of history. And so our moment in history in which we live is the next reason why. And we'll have to skip this chart entirely. Um, well, actually, let's go back to it for just a moment, Mitch, because thank you. I want to make one point about it. We could, I could talk about this chart for a long time. But I just want to point you to one fact. If the rapture occurs today, okay, how many hope we, we can at least make it through the potluck meal and then the rapture occurs? Okay? If the rapture occurs today, and I could go on for a long time about what's going to happen next, but you see there's two witnesses who are going to appear. I just want to point you to one verse, Revelation 11, verse 6. This is after the two witnesses will have been ministering in Jerusalem for three and a half years, identifying and evangelizing and training 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each tribe who will go out to witness the gospel to all the world. There will be millions of people saved during this time. Some have said this will be the greatest revival in the history of the world will happen during the coming time of tribulation. And yet, in Revelation 11, verse uh, 6, we find, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 8, I'm sorry, Revelation 11, verse 8, after the two witnesses are actually martyred and their dead bodies are lying in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called, what? Sodom and Egypt. This is after three and a half years of the two witnesses ministering in Jerusalem and, and ministering through 144,000 other witnesses. And yet even at that point, the city is spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Sounds like there's going to be what? A bunch of unbelievers still there. A bunch of unbelievers there today, but it's prophetically, biblically significant. All right, we're going to have to hurry through our last two... Um, reasons why to be involved with the Friends of Israel. Um, the next one is our ministry's heartbeat. So go ahead, Mitch. Uh, 1948, we've talked about that this morning. Did you know that the nation of Israel came to be regathered to its land in 1948? You probably did. But do you know when the Friends of Israel began? And you might say, well, they've been around a long, long time. Some of you might say maybe even the 80s, huh? Or the 70s. Well, uh, 1938, what was happening? November 9 and 10, 1938. For sake of time, I won't even read the, the long description of it. It was a couple of days that history calls what? Crystal... Nach, the night of broken glass. 30,000 
Jewish men taken off for the first time to Dachau and Buchenwald, which we saw in our Reformation tour last year. Concentration camps beginning. Okay, there's an amazing history to this. You need to go home and and watch some videos about it, if nothing else. The Night of Broken Glass. What does this have to do with the Friends of Israel? Well, this is a, the next slide is a picture of a brick, a picture I took last April when I went out to do some training with the Friends of Israel in Las Vegas. Don't worry, I didn't go into any casinos. Friends of Israel is a very large outreach in Las Vegas because it's a, the 10th most uh, populous area of the country for Jewish people. And we spent a day volunteering at the Warsaw Ghetto Remembrance Garden. Here's a picture of a brick I took that says, Teach me so I can remember. Sometimes we have to learn these things. We don't know them. So maybe there's even nobody here that knows that the Friends of Israel began in 1938, ten years before the State of Israel, three weeks after Kristallnacht. Dr. Harry Ironside on the left, pastor of the Moody Church. Dr. Louis Sperry Chafer on the right, president and founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, were among those early leaders who formed the Friends of Israel Refugee Relief Committee. The name changed a couple of times because before long they had to remove the word refugee because there were no longer the possibility of refugees coming. By the way, this was not popular at the time. The United States was neutral at this time regarding Hitler and the war. And yet these men had the foresight to come together and form what became the Friends of Israel. That's our, that's our ministry's history and heritage and, and uh, purpose. And so we'll have to go through these quickly here that just you can find out all about the Friends of Israel, foi.org. The magazine goes back to 1942, and you can get a free copy on our table out here. I hope you'll stop and visit us, by the way. If you'll sign up on the sheet, you'll get a free subscription to Israel My Glory magazine, one of the most widely distributed Christian magazines in the world. And if you provide your email and check the box below to give your permission, please remember to do that if you would, and you'll get emails from the Friends of Israel, and you'll get emails from us as we launch into distributing newsletters and prayer letters and things, and you'll be on our list that we're building. So please do that if you would, and sign up and get the magazine. Today the outreach, uh, and you can read all about that at israelmyglory.org. You can get the app and uh, read back 20 years' worth of magazines, and ultimately it'll be going back to 1942, okay? And uh, also the Friends of Israel Today radio programs now part of our outreach, and you can find the podcast for that in the next slide at foiradio.org. You can hear it here in Wisconsin on VCY America, Saturdays at 1130. And uh, let's see, the next slide is a picture of the headquarters in New Jersey, just a couple of photos. I could talk to you about that, but for sake of time, we'll move on to the last uh, reason, and that is our gospel hope. We've talked about the gospel this morning. I'd just like to remind you that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, 16, one of the signal verses of the New Testament, the verse that launched the Protestant Reformation, and yet somehow the Reformers really missed one of the phrases of that verse. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first. You say, well, that's for the early times of the, of the church, um, early days of the church, they were running around Jerusalem and they were encountering Jewish people. No, actually, Paul wrote the words of the book of Romans from Corinth in 56 57 A.D., just a few years before he died. Only books he wrote later were the prison epistles and the pastoral epistles. This appears to be a principle Paul wanted us, his disciples, to carry with us throughout the church age. That the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. This was Paul's heartbeat in Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. We could talk at great length about all of the things flowing out of this, how the Reformers missed and twisted, um, uh, ultimately, to some extent, Paul's words about the Jewish people. Um, that's a, a whole separate study. But... Um, also, how do we go about reaching Jewish people today? That would be a whole other study. The main thing that we need to do, first of all, before we do anything with a Jewish person, is to show them our genuine love and gain their confidence. Because we're not doing ministry to Jewish people in a vacuum today. We're doing it in the context of 1,500 years of quote-unquote Christian persecution of the Jewish people. Um, we'll go ahead, Mitch, with uh, just a couple of pictures. We'll wrap up here. Uh, Stones Quarry in Jerusalem at the Friends of Israel headquarters. 1 Corinthians and Psalm 118. Just scripture verses that are there. And then I'll close with just a personal word about um, what we're doing because many of you here know us very well and know uh, a lot about what has happened and how that uh, when we last left you, uh, Lynette was uh, diagnosed with a pituitary tumor that required brain surgery, for which you so graciously uh, poured out your love to us and helped us through that time in incredible ways. And we thank you for that. And... Some of you may or may not be aware of uh, some other circumstances that occurred around that time, including um, the ending of what I hoped would be a, a career that would I would continue in in Christian publishing uh, in a specific uh, company. And out of all of that, um, sort of... Uh, in October 2017, Lynette and I were having lunch one day and we just sort of uh, talked about what are we going to do when we grow up? And, uh, you know, or more like, what do we do now, you know? And what I don't think I've ever shared with you before at all is that we had investigated um, working with the Friends of Israel several years ago, actually before we were ever here. Um, actually filled out an initial application back at that time. But it just seemed so uh, big and so hard and so difficult that uh, we sort of put that away. 
And I don't like to leave things unfinished or untried. Um, and so, and I had even told someone, and the Lord convicted me of this, I told uh, Bruce Scott at the Friends of Israel that someday, someday I'm going to follow through on all of this. And the Lord sort of brought that back to my mind to say, okay, what are you doing now? You know? And out of that time in our lives, we determined we would apply to be to work with the Friends of Israel, not knowing if it would even occur or succeed or be, be fruitful, but we were going to do it and follow it all the way through to the end of whatever God did with it. And the end of that is in uh, this past November of 2018. I was appointed to be a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel, serving here in the upper Midwest. It's a very significant opportunity. It is a support-raising position, and most of you know that. And so that's what we are engaged in attempting to do. I want to thank you folks here at Grace Bible Church for having the distinction of giving us the very first gift we ever received out of your Christmas missions giving this past December and for being among our very first supporting churches. We now have three of them, and you're one. And it just was a difference of a few days of who voted on that when. We thank you for being among that very first group. And I just... It is just a wonderful joy and honor and privilege that, Lord willing, for years to come, we can maintain a connection with you. And we want to serve the church in any way that we can. And uh, we hope to be a blessing to you as you've been a blessing to us. And if you have any questions about any of this, please see us before you go today. And thank you so much for allowing me to be here. I hope I haven't uh, abused the time by going a few minutes long here and I just thank you so much for listening I don't know what your laughter refers to but thank you and may the Lord bless you thank you for letting us be with you today thank you so much